this past week, I met up with a good buddy of mine from back in my college days. I met him there. Um, when, back in the day uh, when we were going to Grace College together, back when I had lived in Indiana for a while, life has been busy for both of us over the, the past number of years, and uh, we're juggling marriage and family and ministry, and we, we tried, though, at, at, at points along the way to get together with each other, to kind of catch up, to pray with each other. And usually we try to get lunch somewhere about halfway between us, and this past Tuesday, that's what we did. We met up at this little Italian restaurant in uh, Indiana. Now, before you start getting jealous and getting hungry for Italian food or something like that, let me just say that it wasn't that great, but uh, it wasn't so much about the food, right? It was about getting together. It was about hanging out. It was about spending time together. We needed an excuse to do that. And so uh, my buddy and I, we, we talked uh, a little bit, and, you know, he uh, grew up in a Christian family. His wife didn't, and uh, he was talking about how it has been really difficult at times over the years uh, to get along or for them to kind of see why it is that he's so committed to the Lord. Why is it that you want to follow Jesus so much, they'll often say. He says the other day he was uh, talking recently to his uh, mother-in-law about the Lord, and, and she tells him, she responds back, and she says, yeah, you know what, um, I, I, you, you'll learn that uh, there's a lot to learn in life, and you're still a young guy, and as you get older, you'll find out that there are lots of ways to get to God. You know, the older you get, when you get to be older like me, you won't be so narrow-minded, she says. You know, I listened to the heartbreak um, of my friend kind of sharing this perspective from his mother-in-law and the hurt on his face and the agony that he felt. And he says, you know, she told me that when I get older, I'll understand that there are lots of ways to God, that there are lots of ways to heaven. I, I heard him say that and I, and I, and I was thinking and, and I thought about that and I said, you know what? There, that's the way our world thinks. That's the way our culture thinks. Most of the people, many people in our culture today think this way. That we live in a world that says, you know what, all religions lead to the same place. They all do. But the reality is that that's not true. And that kind of then leads us into our topic here for this morning. Over the last number of weeks, we have been looking at some of the feasts that God had laid out for his people in the Old Testament. Specifically in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. And this morning we are going to look at one last feast that God gives. A feast that the Hebrews call Yom Kippur. It means the day of atonement. It begins on the 10th day of the 7th month in the Jewish calendar year. And for us that is the month of September. Now if you were to, uh, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we celebrated, we, we talked about the Feast of Trumpets. I, I brought with me last week uh, that shofar, and, and you got to witness that, wit that, that, that brilliant shofar blowing abilities that I have. But uh, what we did is we, we talked about how blowing the trumpet was a way of calling the people to examine their lives, to consider the choices that they were making, to consider the directions, the patterns in life that they had. They were to search out any sin that was present in their lives. And that, that they would take these 10 days, 10 days that they called the 10 days of awe, 
where they would sort of hold up their lives in light of God's truth, in light of God's word, and see what areas they needed to repent of, areas that they needed to uh, return to the Lord in. Those were days of somber, uh, somberness. There were days of fasting that took place during that time. There was this emphasis on self-denial during those days. And at the culmination of those days, after these people had spent 10 days of searching out and being honest about the way that they were living, honest about their need to be forgiven, at the end of those days, there was this day called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was, would answer this question. Okay, God, you ask us to examine our hearts. You ask us to, to see what areas of sin might be there. But what do we do with the sin that we find? The answer to that question is what we're going to be looking at today in this Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement centers around the actions of a character called the High Priest. And if you look at the text, as we look at our text here this morning, what we're going to see is that there is this high priest, the first high priest, named Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest, but all of the other high priests that followed him in his footsteps, they would follow in the same things. They would do the same patterns. They had the same traditions. The high priest had the honor, the privilege of uh, the responsibility of one day a year uh, representing all of the people before a holy God. I brought a picture here of what the high priest would have looked like, and we'll put it up on the screen. Um, he was also wearing at the center of his chest there this breastplate, and so we have a close-up picture of that breastplate as well. And it has these 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this high priest had this incredible responsibility or burden or however you, you want to look at it of carrying all of the people's sins towards God and asking for forgiveness. The high priest would represent the people before God and he would do it in a very specific place. He did it in the place called the most holy place. Now... If you're not familiar with that term, I want to just show you a couple of pictures so that we can kind of visualize what we're talking about here. The first picture is of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And this is a tent that God had described to his people, a place for them to build where he would dwell, a home for him, if you will. God's intent was to dwell in the midst of his people, to lead them, to rescue them. He, he had rescued the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt. And now they're wandering around out in the desert. They, they wander around out in the desert for 40 years until the time when they would then enter into the promised land. During that time in the desert, God had instructed them to encamp in tents around his big tent that was there in the center. This tent of God's, this tabernacle. It was divided up into two major sections. The first was the holy place, and the second was the most holy place. Now, like I said, they're wandering around out in the wilderness, out in the desert for 40 years, and then eventually they're going to get to the promised land. When they get to the promised land, they build a temple. We have a picture of the temple as well. And it's more of this permanent house that God had made. The temple was at the center along with this temple mount around it. 
And all of the activities that took place in Jerusalem took place here. Archaeologists tell us that you could fit about 200,000 people there on the Temple Mount. And so that would be like going to Soldier Field, down where the Bears play, right? You go to the Soldier Field, and, and if you take three and a half Soldier Fields and you put them all together, that's how many people could fit in the Temple Mount. Imagine all of these people being there on the Day of Atonement. It would have been packed in Jesus' day on this high and holy day. We have another picture that we're going to see here of what it would have looked like on the inside of the temple itself. And you can see there that there's this front room, the most holy or the, the holy place. And then in the back room, there's this back room that's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. These two rooms are separated by this large curtain. The curtain was 60 feet tall. Historians say that it was four inches thick. That uh, it was deep purple in color. That it was embroidered with the constellations on it. It was like whatever was happening behind that curtain was so sacred and so holy. That, that God, who lived beyond the stars, lived beyond the galaxies. That, that this was like kind of artwork here on this curtain that would represent where he was and where the people were. If you passed by the curtain before Jesus' day... It would, you would have seen something else that was present there as well. You would have seen the Ark of the Covenant. We have a picture of this as well. The Ark of the Covenant would have been there in the Holy of Holies. The high priest, this breastplate on and everything else, he, he would have been assigned the task of going into the Holy of Holies one time a year and he would deal with the sin of the people. Now, the temple in Jesus' day and before was a place that was uh, where, where this line between heaven and earth were blurred. It was sacred. It was a holy place. You know, in our culture today, we, we don't have many holy spaces anymore. But I want you to, just for a moment, maybe transfer, tra transfer yourself back to 2,000 years ago. Where, where you would have experienced this incredibly special and sacred and holy space. They, they would approach the temple with this reverence, with this awe. And there was actually historians who wrote these first-hand accounts about people who had witnessed, who had been there on the Day of Atonement. I want to read one of these descriptions for you. This is a letter to a man by the name of Ariasis. And this is a first-hand account of the high priest, and he's in action on the Day of Atonement. I want you to listen to this person as he describes what takes place there in Jesus' day. It was an occasion of great amazement to us when we saw Eleazar. Eleazar was the high priest. When we saw Eleazar in his ministry and all the glorious vestments, including the wearing of the garment with precious stones upon it, which he is vested. There, the high priest appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. A man would think that he had come out of this world and into another. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near the spectacle of what I have described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words. His very being transformed by the hallowed arrangement on every single detail. 
He describes going up to this temple mount and, and seeing this absolutely uh, packed full of people. Looking across and he sees the high priest in preparation for this moment where, where, where he's going to go before God and he is going to atone for the sins of the people. There is something special about the high priest at work on Yom Kippur. It was like they were seeing another realm colliding with this realm. Human beings, one time a year, this human being is actually going to be in the very presence of God himself. Now we're going to be looking at um, the, some verses here in Leviticus chapter 16. And so what I want you to do is to grab your Bibles with me. Grab one in the pew rack in front of you. Open your Bible app. But join me in Leviticus chapter 16, if you will. What would happen is that this ceremony would begin with the high priest going through this series of sacrifices, of cleansings for himself. You see, God had told the people that if anyone would come into his presence, they they couldn't just come in any way that they wanted to. But, but they actually, they were told that, if they, that, that only one person was allowed to even go into the Holy of Holies. And, and he could only go in one time a year. And, and if anyone just went in there randomly, they would instantaneously die. What we see is that you just don't enter into the presence of a holy God without first being cleansed yourself. And so not surprisingly, the first thing that God prescribes here on the Day of Atonement is that the high priest is going to make a sacrifice. He is going to sacrifice an animal. Blood must be spilled for his sins and for the sins of the people, atoned for his family's sins, so that he could then go in, enter in to the presence of God. Now, Leviticus is a book that we often don't appreciate very much, that we read over it really fast, or maybe we get to Leviticus and we just kind of skip over it and read something else. Um, but there is a lot of richness here in this text. And, and I want to begin here by reading in verse 6 of Leviticus chapter 16. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read here about this day of atonement. Here's what it says. Aaron, again, that's the name of the high priest. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement. Now, that word atonement means to cover over, to cover over sin. So he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. We have this sense that sin here is both serious and dangerous. And they know this because uh, sin, uh, because of sin, that something had to die. And that goes all the way back to the book of uh, Genesis and back to the Garden of Eden. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God had to kill something. He killed an animal and he clothed them with that animal. Ever since then, there was this connection that was being made between sin and then blood that needed to be spilled. And so... In order to make, the, to, to make the high priest worthy, in order to enter into the presence of God, blood had to be spilled. And, and so this bull would be sacrificed as a sin offering to make atonement. It was so important that the high priest be clean that they even went to these incredible lengths to make sure that nothing would mark him with sin before he entered into this most holy place. And, and so they would literally keep him awake 
all night long. The night before, they would keep him awake all night long because they didn't want him to have a, a, a dream that would somehow make him ceremonially unclean. Also, they had this tradition of this wife-in-waiting because there's this other place in Leviticus that talks about uh, if a spouse dies, that you'd be shamed, or stained by the sin of death unless you would get remarried immediately. And so uh, because of that, they didn't want to end up having this be a problem. And so uh, for the priest in order to enter into the presence of God. And so literally, they would have this wife in waiting, which doesn't really seem to be a great job in my mind, but whatever. And so this guy, uh, if his wife died immediately, he could get remarried so that he wouldn't be disqualified by the sin of death in order to enter into the most holy place. The point is that this is a big deal. He had to be clean because he, he wasn't just carrying his own sin into the presence of God. He, he was representing the nation of Israel. And, and there were millions of eyes that were upon this man as he entered into the presence of God. So he sacrifices a bull to atone for his own sin and for the sin of his family. Look there at verse 7 there in our text. It continues on and it says... Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I brought a, a picture of two goats here this morning. And, um, you know, actually, maybe we forgot that picture. But you, you think about, um, you think about the, just picture a goat in your mind once. But I know some of you are even thinking like, oh, that's so cute. I would love to have a goat for myself. Maybe you want to go and ask your parents for a pet goat. But, um, you know, uh, having a goat in the city might be a little difficult. They are a lot of work. But the, the high priest would take these two goats and present them before God at the entrance of this tent of meeting. And, and the point is that um, they, they're, they're, uh, they're, there's something that's going to take place here that is really significant. And so the, the high priest, he, he, he goes on and, and he does something that seems maybe a little bit strange in our culture today, but it wasn't strange to them. He kind of rolls the dice, all right? And he selects one goat for one purpose. He selects the other goat for another purpose. It's called casting lots in the Bible. It's something that we see and read about happening over and over and over again. And the idea is that God is choosing which goat he wants to to, to do what thing, okay? He, he's kind of directing the role of the dice. And, and so it says there in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 8, And Aaron shall cast lots over the, the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, you, you might be thinking like, oh, wow, the goat, that one goat is chosen for the Lord. I mean, this must be such a, a great thing. This is a, such a lucky goat that it got chosen for the Lord. And maybe this goat is like even thinking in his mind, like celebrating a little bit, having this party, right? I got chosen for the Lord. But, but this celebration would have been short-lived because you notice what it says in verse 9. It says, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, that it would be sacrificed. So unfortunately, this goat celebration would have been short-lived, right? Now, as far as the other goat goes, that's where it gets really interesting here. Verse 10, it says, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel, which means the scapegoat, that's what Azazel means, the scapegoat, 
shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Sometimes in our culture today, we use this idea, we think of this idea of the scapegoat. It's somebody who kind of bears the brunt of the punishment. And this is where this idea comes from, that they would take this goat and they would send it out into the wilderness. Now, before we move on, I want to just kind of get us to picture this in our minds once. You have this whole community of Israel. The community has come together around the tabernacle after a time of searching, after a time of fasting, after a time of waiting. Uh, where, and now they've come to this time where this moment where their sins are going to be forgiven. For them, this is the climax of the whole ceremony and this moment where the high priest brings these two goats. They see this dice being rolled. They see one goat being chosen and slaughtered. They see the other goat, the scapegoat, is chosen. And he's chosen to take the sin of the people outside of the camp, to take it away from them. We're in Leviticus chapter 16. If you jump down to verse 20 there, it says, And when he, that's Aaron, the high priest, when he had made an end of atoning for the the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. You can just imagine this. The silence, the reverence, the awe, the seriousness that this moment must have been. He brings this live goat out in front of the people. This is the chosen vessel to carry the sins of the people outside of the camp. It would have been one of the most holy moments of the entire year. Probably the most holy moment of the entire year. Here's what would have happened. Read there in verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sin. And he shall put on the head of uh, put, he shall put on them, put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquity on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So you had this moment, this moment where the high priest, the one who is wearing this breastplate representing the 12 tribes of Israel, he's carrying the sins of the people, that that he's sort of transferred these sins from the community, all of their sins, onto the head of this goat. Now, there was this fascinating tradition that uh, came out of this. And it involved a red cord, something a little bit like this. And, and what they would do is that they would, before they had laid the sin, that before they took and confessed the, the sin and laid it on the goat, they, they would take this red cord and they would drape this red cord over the head of the goat. And... What the high priest would do is that he, it would kind of represent the, the stain of sin, the, the stain of death. And when the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sins of, of the people, the, the sins of the people were at that point then transferred onto the goat. And then they, they would lead the goat outside of the city. And it was uh, done by someone who had been appointed for that particular task. You think about that once. At this point, this is one loaded goat that is heading out of the city, that is heading outside of the camp. 
because all of the sins of all the people are on this goat. And it is such a powerful moment for the people because they're following these instructions that God, their creator, had given them. And they know that that goat is carrying their sins outside of the camp. What relief. God had instructed the people to take the goat outside of the camp. And tradition developed over the years uh, where they didn't want this goat coming back into the camp. I mean, this goat with all of the sins that had been laid on it, they didn't want it wandering back into the camp a few days later. And so what happened is they started pushing these scapegoats off of a cliff. And uh, we, we, we read back in verse 8 and verse 10 about this place called Azazel. Now, we have a picture here this morning of this place in Israel called the Cliffs of Azazel. And uh, what, we, what we know about Azazel is it means scapegoat. And it's this idea of, of um, being separated, being taken away. And so this man who was appointed to take the goat outside of the city, he would take it to this place called Azazel, the the scapegoat. He would take the scapegoat away, the Azazel. You could say it this way. He would Azazel the Azazel. He would take away the one who was to be taken away. God had told his people that if they would do this, they would experience forgiveness, that they would experience cleansing. And what we see is that the people actually believed him, that they actually did what it is that he told them to do. And so they would watch as this goat exited the camp. And as they did, it was like they were seeing God's grace at work in their lives. They would kind of have this clean slate before God. Not, not because of anything that they had done, but because of what God had done for them. That the people of Israel did this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They, they would gather 10 days uh, before this for, the, for these 10 days of searching out their souls in, in the presence of, to see if there was sin that was present in their lives. They would confess it before the Lord. They, they would confess that they needed to be rescued from their sin. They knew that they couldn't enter into the presence of a holy God in this life or in the life to come because of the stain of sin in their lives. And so they would bring their sins to the Lord and they would watch as the sins were then transferred onto the head of this goat and they would watch as this goat then exited out of the camp. Now, something that's fascinating is what happens as we sort of move from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John this morning. We have four accounts about Jesus and his life and ministry in the scriptures in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is a follower of Jesus Christ. John uh, saw these events take place with his own eyes. This description that he gives is a description of some of the last moments of Jesus' life. That, That if you understand the Day of Atonement, you see just how incredible these parallels are here. But this is John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John chapter 19 pictures Jesus, and he is standing before this man by the name of Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor. He was an agent of the Roman Empire. Jesus had been brought before Pilate because his people had accused him of all sorts of evil things. And, and And in this moment, what we read is this. This is John chapter 19 and verse 1, and it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Now, I want you to just imagine this for a moment. A crown of thorns being placed on your head. And as it's pushed down on your head, right, it punctures into your skin. And so you're left with this ring, right? It's a red ring. A ring of blood around your head. Kind of like that red cord that was placed around the head of the scapegoat. Jump down to verse 14. It says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Now I want you to think about those words for just a moment here. These are Jewish people who are saying, Away with him! Away with him! Azazel! It's like they're saying... Take him out of here. Take him out of the camp. Get rid of him. And then they take him out and he's crucified, right? If you're familiar with this Day of Atonement, you see that there's a connection here that that Jesus, John argues, is like an Azazel. He's like a scapegoat. That the, the sins of the people are placed on him. He is led outside of the camp. He is crucified. He is killed for the sins of the people. One who is innocent is killed for the guilty. John chapter 19 and verse 16 says, So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over, that, over to them to be crucified. And by the way, Jesus is crucified outside of the city. And there is this group of Roman soldiers who take the, him there. He is a scapegoat with this red ring around his head and and he's taken the sin of of the people upon himself. And so Jesus is like an Azazel, but he's different than an Azazel. Every other Azazel that has gone before him. The Day of Atonement happened every year for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It happened every year because the people, just like us, continued to sin. They continued to fall back into these patterns and these habits that were so destructive, that were sinful. And so every year, there had to be a fresh start. God knew that if His people were going to live as the people that He had made them to be, then they were going to have to have a fresh start. There was going to have to be a way where they would be made clean. And so year after year after year, They would gather together. They would select these goats. They would place the sin, uh, uh, their sin, upon this goat. And this goat would be led outside of the camp. As you get older and older, and you would experience this over and over again, I have to imagine that you might have been crying out for a better way, for something better, a better way of life. I mean, isn't there a better way of dealing with my sin than this? Because I understand that we need something bigger. We need something more transformational to happen. Because the people would have to keep going back to ask for forgiveness because they kept going back to their sin. And it was like they were coming to God and saying, you know what, there's no way that I can make myself right before God, before a holy God. There's no way that I can do it. Isn't there a better way? God, possibly, could there be a once and for all sacrifice that would stop this endless blood flow from the city of Jerusalem? And if if it were possible that something like that could happen, you could imagine that people would call that good news, right? It's good news! Well, I want to invite you to grab your Bible again and turn over just a little further to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 
chapter 10. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, but we do know who it was written to. Because when we read this letter, we we see um, that there are all sorts of Old Testament imagery sprinkled throughout this entire book. It was written to Jewish people as an attempt to kind of help them understand who Jesus was, why it is that he came. That he wasn't just some random prophet from God, but instead he was in fact the son of God, that he was the Messiah who was sent specifically into a Jewish culture in order to fulfill Jewish images. And so what we see in Hebrews chapter 10 is this discussion of why exactly Jesus came and what he came to do. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 talks about the Old Testament law and it starts out this way. For since the law has, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, uh, would, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder that's of sin every year. So he's saying, you know what? These sacrifices for sin, they had to keep being offered year after year after year after year because none of these sacrifices was a perfect sacrifice. None of these sacrifices was a once and for all kind of sacrifice. Jump down to verse 11. We read about the high priest there and it says this. Every high priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never Take away sins, at least not once for all, right? But when Christ, the great and perfect high priest, who is fundamentally different than every other high priest that has gone before him, when Christ, who is not only the high priest, but he's also the scapegoat, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. I love that, I love that last verse so much. I, I love that phrase. It says, he has perfected, he has declared righteous those who are being sanctified. And so there is this sense that after we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we are declared righteous in the eyes of God because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But we're still being made perfect through this journey that we go through in life. That, that, that uh, as we learn to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit, we are being perfected. That he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One sacrifice is offered in order to free God's people. One sacrifice, once and for all. We need to confess our need for a Savior just like those people thousands of years ago who believed God that he would actually take away their sin. And uh, we need to believe that he took away that sin and he placed it on Jesus Christ. That he led him outside of the camp 2,000 years ago when he was crucified. That blood that was spilled covers our sins. We need to confess 
that we are incapable of self-rescue, that a holy God demands holy people in his presence, and we in and of ourselves are incapable of being holy. We, even, uh, even if we could somehow be holy uh, from this day forward, if we could somehow find a way to live the rest of our lives as holy lives, what are we going to do with all of the garbage from our past? And so the only way for us to truly experience cleansing before God is if somebody outside of ourselves would come and would rescue us. Now, you may have noticed that the author of Hebrews talks about this high priest, Jesus Christ. And it says, the author says, he sat down. That's hugely significant here. That Jesus Christ sits down because he doesn't have any other work to do. He sits down because on the cross he cries out, it is finished. It's finished. What's finished? The sacrificial system, the blood flow, the scapegoat. This whole system was a shadow of the reality that is found in Jesus Christ. And so the high priest sits down. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice that covers the sin of God's people. And it's not us to up to us to pay the debt for our sin, which makes Christianity different than any other religion in the world. The Son of God hung on the cross in order that we might go free. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You can't earn it. It's a gift that you receive. And then the rest of your life is lived out in faithfulness for that, that that we uh, take hold of what is already taken hold of us. Years ago, someone penned these words. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's a reference to something that Isaiah wrote, that he wrote that our our sins are like scarlet, but uh, God would would leave us clean, that he would make us white as snow. And that's what makes Jesus different than any other religious system in the world. There's so many people in our world today who would say, you know what? Well, all religions are the same. They're they're all just seeking truth and enlightenment. They're all just seeking self-discipline. That, that there are all these different, these different paths that are, leading, that are going up the same mountain, that are all leading to the same place, the same point. But that's not true. There, there's something fundamentally different about Christianity. Because Jesus Christ was sent into this world to rescue us from our sinful way of living. Jesus was sent. He sacrificed his life. You see, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament is just a shadow of the good things that were to come. And then in Christ, this reality shows up on the scene and it changes everything. That he hangs on the cross and he says, it is finished. And because of that fact, we can then say, Jesus, he paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin, it left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. I want to ask uh, Tracy and Linda to come. We're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. We're going to sing that hymn. Jesus paid it all. We, we, we can't do anything in our own strength, in our own power, by, uh, to, to bring about salvation. But Christ has completed what we couldn't do. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament couldn't do this over the hundreds and hundreds of years. It couldn't be accomplished through that. This was just a shadow of what was to come. Jesus brought about salvation. He brought about redemption. 
and forgiveness. The Bible says that salvation is found in no one else. That there is no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. And so, as we sing this song together this morning, it's my prayer that each and every one of us would have a greater sense, a greater understanding of what this means, a greater appreciation of who Jesus is, that He is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, that we would have a greater appreciation for what He has done in our lives. And so, if you would, uh, just...